one of the Puritans wrote these words, and I quote, the whole of scripture is a feast of the soul. The whole of scripture is a feast of the soul. This morning, with God's help and good hand, we're going to be looking into the first chapter of the gospel according to John, the prologue or the preface. And I think this is a special dish at this feast because this, these words give us a deeper appreciation and understanding of our blessed Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, God willing, I intend to preach a short series on the words of this prologue or this preface. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the first five verses under the heading, The Activity of God. Next Lord's Day morning, we're going to be looking at the announcement of the word, and next Lord's Day evening, the appearance of the word. I'd like to read again the text before us at this moment, John chapter 1 and verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. A few weeks ago, I read a very interesting book, and it was about uh, a 1972 expedition to climb Mount Everest. And Mount Everest stands at 29,028 feet high. And the team leader was writing the book. And as I read on, I could not be helped but be impressed by the sheer courage and the determination and the organization of such an incredible experience, an expedition to climb Mount Everest. And when they were about 1,000 feet below the summit, the team leader wrote in his daily diary what he could see, what was before him at 28,000 feet, as it were. And it was a breathtaking panoramic view, an incredible view that was, as it were, otherworldly. And this morning, friends, in a figurative sense, I call you to stand on the summit of a mountain, a spiritual and a theological mountain. And I call you to admire the view that is set before you as we think of Christ. These words in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, they act as the prologue to the gospel, the fourth gospel, but they also act as a trailer because they are dropping little hints and glimpses of what is going to be unfolded in that fourth gospel. And so it's, it, this was written by the Apostle John, commonly known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when we look to the end of the gospel, we see the purpose of writing. And just let me remind you of those words in John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. This is John's purpose in writing this gospel narrative. John chapter 20 at verse 30. 
And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. We notice there that ye might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. That can also be interpreted that you may continue to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So in other words, this document before us, the Gospel according to John, is one, an evangelistic tract. It was written for those who are strangers to God's grace to draw them into the life of of Christ's kingdom. But secondly, it was written to build up people like you and I, to build up and strengthen believers in their most holy faith. So my title this morning is The Activity of the Word. The Activity of the Word. And we note this activity of the Word both in creation and in human history. The prologue begins and ends with a ringing affirmation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, And the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. These words are setting out before us Christ's credentials. They are underlining for us who Christ is. We're thinking of Jesus of Nazareth. We are thinking of Jesus who was born in that manger manger in Bethlehem. But we are also thinking of Christ, the eternal word. In the beginning, we read, in the beginning, before the very first page had been written of human history. In the beginning, before earth and heaven and the seas had been created. The Word, the Christ, already existed. The Logos. And here we have in these words an inspired portrayal of the Christ in all his beauty and his glory and his power and his magnificence of who he really is, that he was before the world was, before the very first day of creation, before the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. We read that in the beginning was the Word. The Word existed. The Word was with God. The word was with God literally means that the Christ was face to face with God. It means that he was enjoying the closest possible fellowship and communion with God the Father. Intimate communion between the first and second person of the eternal Godhead, along with the third person, the Holy Spirit of God. I remind you of part of Christ's 
great high priestly prayer on the night when he was betrayed, when he prayed, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory I had with thee before the world was. And so as someone has said, the word, the Christ, the Logos, enjoyed an eternity of infinitely close communion with the Father, rejoicing, delighting, always before him. In the beginning was the word. There are only four occasions when the word, word, meaning Christ, appear in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 18. 1 John 1, verse 1. And Revelation 19, 13. So we read here that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, in communion and fellowship with God. And we read on that the Word was God. Tremendous. The Word was God. You may be familiar with one of the Christmas hymns, O Come, O Ye Faithful, I think it is. And in that hymn it says, it speaks of the newborn child as very God, begotten and not created. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the pre-existent one, eternal. He is, the, he is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. He is co-equal in terms of the attributes. All the attributes of God the Father may be assigned to God the Son. For example, God's glory and God's power and God's might and majesty and God's love. So Jesus Christ was not just a created angel. He wasn't some inferior being we discover that the Christ, in fact, is perfect God. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That scrap of an early Christian hymn which we read of in Philippians chapter 2. So the word, what does this mean practically when we say that Christ is the word? It means, friends, that he is the speaker and the interpreter of God the Father's will. He is the explainer of the mind of God. Now, these are difficult concepts to grasp. These are theological concepts and truths that we are addressing ourselves to this morning. I quote Augustine, one of the early church fathers, and he said this on these words. He likened it to the sun shining in the sky and its rays. The sun and its rays, they are two differences, aren't they? They're different, and yet they are together. The sun and its rays. And so with Christ and the Father, they are inseparably united as one. Again, Christ's own words in John 10, verse 30, where he said, I and my Father are one. Why does the Apostle John then begin his gospel 
by using this term, the word. If you look into the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do not use this term. So why does the Apostle John use this term? John was writing later. He was writing his gospel account later than the other three. John was writing to both a Jewish and a Gentile readership. And in the first century, both the Jews and the Gentiles could very easily have misunderstood the term the Son of God. If John had said this is about Jesus, the Son of God, there may have been some misunderstanding. So he borrowed a current term. And he knew that this term, word, would have more meaning both to Jews and Greeks. So a word then. A word, it serves two purposes, does it not, friends? First of all, a word gives expression to an inner thought. So you are thinking something in your mind and you express that thought. And how do you express that thought? By using a word. It reveals this thought to other people. For example, you may be feeling a little anxious or even fearful. This is the thoughts that are passing through your mind and you wish to express that thought to another. And so Christ expresses, reflects the very mind of God. He reveals God to human beings. He reveals the mind of God to us through his glorious person and through his incredible works and through the word, through the inspired word. This is how we know. We call it the revelation of God to his people. We would not know God. We would not know our need of God. We would not realize there was a savior who had met that need. Without Christ and his earthly ministry, and especially his death and resurrection and ascension, without his works of miracles of nature and other works, without the written word which is before us. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. But John, are you not just repeating yourself? Why are you repeating yourself, John? You've already said this in verse 1. John is deliberately repeating himself. If you look into the Old Testament you will read of many, many prophecies concerning coming Messiah. And those prophecies repeat themselves endlessly. And so it is with gospel truths, with divine truths. There is a necessity of repeating these truths so that we really grasp them fully, that we believe in them, we know them, and they also affect our daily life. Verse 3, all things were made by him, all things were made by the word, without him was not anything made that was made. The activity of the word, the activity of the word, Colossians 1 verse 16, for by him, Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. 
Hebrews 1.10. Lord, in the beginning hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. If you can imagine, and this is very, it's impossible to imagine in a way, but let's just imagine for a moment that we could put ourselves within the eternal councils way back in eternity, and in the eternal councils there was a conversation between the members of the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it was decided that Christ would be appointed to be the source and the cause of life and that Christ would be appointed to come into this world and so you see all things were created by him heaven and earth and the seas the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets animal life and human life it's a very comprehensive term all things fully inclusive of what it says everything that was created he is the source and the cause of all that life I love Psalm 148 towards the end of the Psalter and in Psalm 148 the the psalmist is as it were looking around at creation and then he's just making a little note in his notebook before he writes the psalm of everything that he can see and towards the end of the psalm, he writes this. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. All things, one by one, came into being through the power and the work, the activity of this word. Nothing was made without Christ. A few years ago, we had in our home, hanging on the wall, a lovely painting. And it was a simple painting, in a way, of a bluebell wood. And it was, you could imagine what it was. There was a lovely display of bluebells at the very peak, as it were. And they were surrounded by all the trees. And there was just one squirrel climbing up on a branch. And it was a very pleasant painting. It was painted by a Christian artist. And in the very lower right-hand corner of the painting, the artist had first of all signed his name and dated the painting, and then he just added these words, Jesus, the creator. Jesus, the creator. That Christian artist clearly appreciated the things that we are considering this morning. Clearly he appreciated not only Jesus of Nazareth, Yes, in his perfect human nature, but also Jesus Christ in his perfect divine nature. So all things were created by him, but someone may ask, what about sin? All things were created by him, but not sin was not created by him. In the original creation, when God had ended his work of creation, he, as it were, stood back from the creation and he judged that all was very good. It was perfect. It was beautiful. It was untainted. It was unspoiled. It was without sin. But then came the fall, what we call the fall of man, when sin 
and disobedience came in. And as Romans 5.12 reminds us, by sin, one met by man, one sin entered into the world. And that's Adam's sin. And that's been translated to all his posterity. And so we can read elsewhere in the book of Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Another comprehensive word there, all. There's not one human being that has not sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 4, in him, in the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The activity of the word. In the Old Testament, we read of the activity of the word. Because God was manifesting himself to a people, to a nation, to Israel. And God was revealing in himself, especially to that people who became his chosen people and a holy nation. And so God throughout human history has been revealing himself and manifesting himself to this world. That light that it speaks of there in verse 4 has ever been shining in this present dark world. But sadly, the world steadfastly refuses to accept the light, actively opposes the message of God's gospel, of God's word of truth and love, of salvation, of grace and mercy. Before the fall, pre-fall, then life in Christ was God's intention. That human beings, those whom he had created, he intended that they would enjoy blessed communion and fellowship with their God, with their creator God. And that's still God's intention today. Hence, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hence, then, we read here of the life of the word, which somebody has said is, is the guide of man's soul to heaven. This is how to reach heaven. This is how to know God's forgiveness and mercy toward you and to enjoy a blessed relationship with your maker and to experience salvation, a work of God, and to be able to testify of God's almighty power to recreate, to make new, to forgive. A miracle of grace, the same power that created and sustains all things. And we read that in him was life. Well, life in this context means zoe. This means spiritual life and eternal life. So Christ is a source of all life in the way in which we indicated a few moments ago, but especially we're thinking of spiritual life and eternal life in him. Because in Christ, we see the fullness of all the attributes of God. His holiness and truth, his wisdom, his love, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his eternality. We see the, the full blessedness of the life of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he presents 
all these things, all these truths to this present world. And he presents himself as the only saviour of sinners. But this is a dark world. And over recent months, there's been, in my view, a new darkness that is presently covering this world. And we read in John chapter 3 these words of how the world sadly responds to the offer of Christ's message. Chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And then fast forward into John chapter 8, one of the great I am declarations of Christ, John 8 and verse 12. John 8 verse 12 then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. There is a grand declaration, an exclusive declaration made by Jesus Christ. Only he can say, I am the light of the world. And those who follow after me, those who become his people, those who become his disciples shall now no longer walk in darkness, moral darkness, spiritual darkness. May I ask you, friend, are you currently following after the light of the world? Do you know Jesus Christ personally as your Savior, as your Lord? You've heard about him. You may have know some information about him. But do you truly know him? Have you reached that point in your life where you've reflected on your life and where you've been convinced that you need to get right with God and to be at one with him who is your maker, to confess your sins before him and to know that he has forgiven you and that you can speak of his mercy and of his saving grace. Verse 5, And the light shineth in darkness. It was always shining. And the darkness comprehendeth it not. The darkness apprehendeth it not we could say there in a modern version of the bible it quite simply says they understood it not the darkness has not overtaken the light has not laid hold of the light has not seized the light as it were the light keeps giving light in the darkness but the darkness has not comprehended it in other words, those who are still strangers to God's grace, they have not believed it. They have not accepted it. They have not taken it on board. They have not appropriated it to themselves. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now John was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. But listen to these words. So this light, this word, was in the world. The world, as we've been reminded, was made by him. And yet the world knew him not. 
He came unto his own people, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. I'm going to do something very unusual for myself now. I'm going to quote a Methodist preacher. And this was a worthy Methodist preacher of many years ago in the 1950s, Alfred E. Whittam. And I'm going to quote his words. And he's looking around his world in the 1950s and the churches. And he's thinking about the Christian faith that had now been running for some 2,000 years. And this is what Alfred E. Whittam said. He said, after 2,000 years of belief in life and meanings and possibilities of facing death unafraid, if in our godless society Christ is discredited, there will be a darkness when we badly want a light. There will be a silence when we badly want a voice. And he continues to say this from his own experience, every interpretation of making any sense of life carries its intellectual difficulties. But he's still speaking, I can only speak that in my experience, Christ answers all the questions. And so I've opened my heart to him, a heart that longs for all that he offers and promises. And I go on my way through life with irrepressible joy. End of quote. It'll be a long time now before you hear me quote a Methodist preacher again, perhaps. In these first five verses, in this opening of this prologue to the fourth gospel or this preface, we notice in verse 1, verses 1 and 2, the state before the creation of the world. In verse 3, we read of the world's creation. In verse 4, the time of man's uprightness. And in verse 5, the time of man's decline and fall. Are you still standing on the summit of that mountain, friends? It is a spiritual and a theological mountain. So this morning's message, do you just find this interest in theology? Or do you find these rather just dull theoretical statements? Or does this message, does this word that's been set before you impact your life? For good. Because before us, we have had many doctrines. The doctrine of God. The doctrine of sin. The doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of creation. The doctrine of Christ. And finally, I endeavour to make some simple applications for us, friends. First of all, I encourage you to read regularly John chapter 1 and the first five verses. I encourage you to read them and think about these words and what they're saying to you about the eternal God, the creator and the preserver of everything, the person of Christ, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the one who underlines the sinfulness of sin. The one, as we read, who was with the word and was with God and was God and in fact became Emmanuel God with us the word became flesh 
God with us. But secondly, appreciate precious divine truths. Read scripture and meditate upon scripture. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you, to grant you light and understanding that you may behold Christ in all the scriptures and that rather than looking around at this present rather dark world which will only depress you, lift your eyes heavenward and Godward and Christward as the scripture says, set your affections upon the things above. And thirdly, let occasional thoughts of Christ be many. And what do you think about when you've nothing to think about? Well, think about Christ in all his glory. And as you walk out of this building this morning, what difference is it going to make in your life that I've reminded you that the word is Christ, that the word is God. And finally, would you perhaps use this to be a spur to myself and to yourselves to really pray for those many people, the multitudes this day, who are still inhabiting that kingdom of darkness and are still at a distance from knowing and loving God. Pray that, that God's creative power may be at work to change lives, to utterly transform lives. That creative power that was so evident during the week of creation, the creative power that can also be used by the author of the new creation, the Word. This morning we've been meditating upon the activity of the Word of God. Next Lord's Day morning, God willing, we shall meditate upon the announcement of that same word.